Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Uh, welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. Hi, I'm Bill, and each week on the Living Free Show, we showcase one of the programs that assists recovery from drugs, alcohol, gambling and food addictions. Our guests share their recovery story and highlight that shared experience saves lives. Melbourne was again in snap COVID lockdown last week. So we decided to record this interview as we weren't sure whether we'd be able to do it live. Today, my guest is Matt Woodley. Uh, he's an ambassador for Smart Recovery Australia, and he'll be talking about smart recovery and give us some insight into how it has helped with his recovery from reliance on alcohol and how he helped others by running a smart recovery group. So welcome to the show, Matt. Thanks, Bill. Our usual format is to talk about what influences growing up uh, when we're exposed to problematic behaviours and about recovery. So would you like to start by giving our listeners an insight into your sort of formative childhood and teenage years and the things that um, you think were important influences on your life? Sure, thanks. Um, so I I grew up in Perth. I didn't move to Victoria until well into my 20s. So I grew up in Perth, but always on the outskirts of the metropolitan area or, or a little bit outside of that. So most of my formative years were sort of based around having a lot of space around. I really enjoyed time going for, you know, playing in the bush or having, I think we had up to 10 acres and a handful of sheep, so not really farmers. But that was, I guess, most of the things that I did involved playing outside. I guess what I've always valued, that, that time that I get to play outside. I never had a lot of exposure as a child to drugs or or alcohol or those sorts of things that was not not a big part of my growing up so I guess we'll get to it later but it there was a, a different process for me to get into it I guess but growing up outside of Perth I had got an older brother who's about five and a half years so I did I did look up to him a lot um he, I guess he got me uh smoking my first cigarettes there wasn't, I guess, a lot of what you might expect in the childhood that you'd, you'd be looking for back to as triggers. There was a little bit of violence growing up in the household, but not, not a huge amount. There was a stepfather along the way who was not a, not a particularly nice person and he, he did sort of hit the children around a bit. But I've personally have never linked that back to anything. I can remember even at the age of eight, comparing him to other adults and just looking around and thinking, well, most people don't necessarily act like this. So it's, it's probably a problem that the adult has more so than the eight-year-old in this equation. Even with that, it was, it was quite obvious having an older brother. There's that old adage about, you know, dad kicks mum, mum kicks child, child kicks dog, dog kicks cat, that sort of thing going down the chain. And it was quite obvious there that I could see that if, if he hurt somebody else or annoyed somebody else, they'd go and find the next smallest person and, and annoy them. So I guess I don't sheet any blame back to that. It, it seemed to me an irrational thing to do even back then. Yeah. So what, what about childhood friends in school? I had plenty of childhood friends, but none of us were particularly 
unruly or getting into other other behaviors i mean i played i played dungeons and dragons in high school so i wasn't exactly hanging out with the with the party crowd but equally living in smaller communities i did know all the you know the the cooler people who were having parties so you know that i might not have wanted to go to their parties but i wasn't picked on or bullied or anything like anything like that so i was a not so much simple but it was a fairly comfortable existence in in that regard um certainly not a wealthy one but my friends were were all of a like mind we'd play on a sports team together we'd play a bit of dungeons and dragons together but there there really wasn't much exposure to to alcohol or other drugs um probably about the age of 12 or so i did notice that my parents would have wine of an evening but it was outside of special occasions like christmas time when the family might come round i i didn't really see people being drunk in a noticeable way and yeah there weren't negative connotations to it yeah so what about your older brother then i guess being that much older did he start exposing you to more adult behaviors and more adult things he did there were there were definitely some adult concepts he certainly had his own issues too and the stepdad i mentioned that was pretty violent took a lot more out on him than he did on on me so you know that fed down the line from my brother and he was having a lot of trouble coping with it so he would not so much drugs and alcohol but there were exposure to other sort of ideas i don't know quite how to explain it it wasn't really a something where i would see him doing things it would just be like he would talk to me about concepts that i had no idea about um since he just tried to trick me into thinking that something was a lolly or something was a present that i should give to a friend at school or something when clearly that would have been massively inappropriate but he he certainly did have his issues around violence and particularly cruelty but apart from the cigarettes i don't think i was exposed to anything else in the drug and alcohol sense and even then it wasn't forced on me it was just i had a I had an older brother and i thought he was just so cool so if he did it i wanted to do it too yeah so was there any difference moving to high school not a big difference in terms of exposures to things i moved up into a much bigger school so on the outskirts of perth where i grew up to finish high school we had to sort of head down from the hills to a much bigger suburb which had a school that went all the way up to year 12 but because so many of us were leaving our small school to go down there we could maintain the same social interactions so there was an exposure to that's probably the first time that i became aware of of marijuana um there were some students in the school were actually smoking it in the school but i i never i never actually had any at school there was never any pressure i didn't particularly want to to do it i would have been 17 the first time that i that i got drunk and 17 the first time i tried marijuana didn't become anything habitual straight away for for either of those but no in high school there wasn't any massive exposure i'd still go back home to the you know house up in the hills with acres and acres of bush around it and that was essentially where where we'd play with some friends up for dungeons and dragons I and mean, when i wasn't doing that i'd just be walking around in the bush okay what about relationships uh was high school a time of uh, forming relationships Yeah relationships with peers I was very late to the sort of intimate relationships uh, sphere I guess I I would have had my first girlfriend when I was 19 so 
out of out of high school already then so it was mysterious in in the romantic sense i mean i was quite aware that there were women around but wasn't particularly doing anything about it and in terms of substances again there was there were no particular relationships that introduced me to difficult concepts or to an increased amount of drugs or alcohol that that really didn't come in until probably my early 20s yeah so did getting a car and license change your lifestyle it did a little bit um we could then actually head on down down the hill and into the city and actually go out for nights drinking on the town but even still i guess money was a controlling factor then so it would was nothing that was particularly different it was the occasional maybe once a month might head out for a Friday night on the town that sort of thing which was not a problem at that stage back then certainly became a problem later on i became that person that kind of wanted friday night to happen on monday nights and tuesday nights as well but no it that stage it wasn't an issue i went on a student exchange when i was 17 so not much before my 18th birthday i left and lived for a year in south america maybe got drunk three or four times over a 12 month period you know once being my 18th birthday so probably not problematic behaviors and then came home and was back into university then how did your family sort of feel about your education and path in life were they just relaxed about the way you were going yes my family is very relaxed about things like that they're very much a um you know you'll you'll make your own choices sort of thing but once i've once i'd come back from south america um my parents moved out not long after that they went and started working overseas when i came back i didn't stay for long in the family home just because it was so far out of town and i was at university so i went and lived much closer to university so that would have been when i was 18 just about to turn 19 i guess that's probably when i started recreationally smoking a, a fair bit of marijuana but again on a weekend sort of basis probably once i hit the second year of university that's when my parents went overseas and so they wanted people to live in the house so i moved back into the house but my brother also moved back into the house and I, I wouldn't have lived with him for a long time then when i was about 10 we moved across to victoria for a couple of years and my brother who was 16 then stayed in perth so as of the age of 10 i hadn't actually lived with him on a day-to-day basis always maintained a bit of contact but not living with but when i was about would have been 20 then we all ended up back in the family home with no parents and he was 26 then and he was working in the theater and had a couple of his sort of grip friends or technician friends would be living with us at various times over the journey and that's when like quite large amounts of marijuana would start arriving home it would sort of sit on the table in a fruit bowl and then that's when things really started to become i guess habitual so it wasn't wasn't all day but just the idea of coming home was you would just sit down and smoke a whole lot of of dope and watch the simpsons for a while did that affect your uni not really i tended to get all of my work done at university i wasn't a particularly good studier at home but i never never really have been I'm very easily distracted if i'm sitting around trying to work by myself so if I, there was something i needed to do i tend to do that 
at a friend's place who's studying the same thing or, or in a library, something like that. But no, it didn't, it didn't affect my studies in a negative way at all. Uh, so what about relationships? Did it affect your relationship? Not especially, but most of the relationships I was forming then were with people who also smoked as well. So, Yeah, it's not unusual. <laughs> no, it wasn't particularly unusual there. And it was easy to, to dismiss it because it was so common and you didn't have to look very hard to find someone who was you know, smoking a whole lot more than you. So it wasn't particularly unusual. It didn't affect my relationships in the sense that I was missing things, but most of my social engagements were, were, were with friends who wanted to do the same things as me. I didn't miss the university classes. So what about uh, finishing uni and going to work? Well, by the time I'd finished uni, it was pretty much a daily habit to be smoking. Going to work, I would often arrive at work a little bit tired because I'd sort of stayed up late just watching TV and smoking a whole lot of, of dough. But again, it didn't affect my ability to do a job, but I certainly still aimed, I guess, low for the jobs. I didn't pursue some postgraduate work at that stage. I didn't try very hard to get a job in the science field that I'd, I'd qualified for. So I just, I guess I just took it fairly easy there and prioritised just having enough money coming in to, to eat and smoke and not do much else. When did you think that, I guess, your smoking or your drinking was starting to become an issue for you? While I had reasonably menial, not menial, but not too complicated jobs, I never felt like it was an issue. It was always increasing, but I never felt like it was an issue. It got earlier and earlier in the day and then eventually sort of through the mid-20s it became that I would actually be carrying it around with me and finding opportunities during the day to find a quiet spot to smoke some marijuana. I moved across to Victoria in in my mid-20s yeah, I would find opportunities during the day, progressively as it got on, more moving towards the age of 30. I would just find opportunities to smoke more and more and more during the day. That's when I guess the secretive side started to come in because it was you know, not something you could do terribly publicly. So just finding spaces around where you worked. Um, I went back to university in my early 30s and studied. And then I got a different job. I guess that's when it really ramped up and I really started to find even even more opportunities to smoke and smoke and smoke. That's when I decided that it was really becoming a bit of a problem. There was a period in my late 20s. I don't, I don't think of it as a major period, but it would have been about 12 months. So I guess it's significant. But over that 12-month period, I was, I was taking amphetamines probably pretty much every day. This was the sort of not wanting to let the party go because I enjoyed going out on the Friday and Saturday night sometimes. But I'd be taking um, amphetamines, some ecstasy pretty much most nights and not actually going out, but the idea was that it just made it easier to smoke lots and lots of weed and just stay up late. But again, just playing a silly game on the computer or something like that. Yeah. Okay. Well, listen, we might take a short break there. Hi, I'm Kutcher Edwards. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison radio series, where we share the mic with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates in Victorian prisons. We started in 2002, 
and this year marks 20 years on the air. For more information, head to our website, 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. Thoughts within, visions I see, daring to dream, my destiny. This is the Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you're interested in listening to one of our many podcasts, then either head to your preferred podcast platform, iTunes, Spotify, or just Google 3CR Living Free. On our show's webpage, you'll also find details about the Living Free Show and how to contact us. Today I'm talking with Matt Woodley, and we're talking about recovery with the help of Smart Recovery Australia. So Matt, uh, we're talking before the break about, I guess you're in your, your mid-20s and you were starting to use other drugs than marijuana and you're sort of increasing your, I guess, your drug use. That has a profound effect on relationships and things. So how did that work out with you taking more of these mind-altering substances and having relationships with other people? Well, in my mid-20s, I started a relationship with the woman who is who is now my wife. So we were working together. I guess this is when it really became incumbent on me to hide what I was actually doing. So there would be, I'm 26, she's 22. So there's times where we're going out on for you know party nights on the weekend and we both might have a little something, whether that's alcohol or other drugs. But I usually wanted to persist with it during the week and not living together. I, I could actually do that. But of course, I didn't tell people about that. I'd still turn up to work and sort of try to function as normal. This is also the time where I've started, I guess, carrying the marijuana around with me and finding opportunities during the day, you know, quiet corner of the car park or something like that and smoking some some marijuana. But as people are visiting me, you know, that's when I'm, not really letting on that I'm doing this on a daily basis. But about that age, I would have been taking some ecstasy every night, not partying except on the weekends. And I really started to notice, I guess, that a tolerance built up. So there was always the desire to take a bit more. I guess that's an important thing to say at this point is I always have liked the effect of drugs and alcohol. To me, it was the end in itself. It wasn't there to numb something necessarily. I, I really enjoyed the feeling of being affected. Can you explain that feeling, like what it did to you? Well, it just made everything a bit different. Television might be a bit more interesting. I'd enjoy going down to the shops, um, whatever it is, whatever normal activities I did, I would sort of enjoy them a bit more just with that other perspective. Depending on what I had, like I, I would quite enjoy taking some acid, for example, and I mainly enjoyed the psychotropic kind of drugs. I wasn't so much into things like speed or never really touched methamphetamine because I didn't, I didn't particularly like those ones. I like the ones which just were a bit more mind-altering rather than energetic, I guess. Might be a nice way to describe it. So I would really enjoy doing just normal activities whilst taking a whole lot of drugs. And as the tolerance built up, I'd 
want to take more and more. Most people at that time would tell you that they, they wouldn't know if I'd, I'd had anything or not. Which is an indication itself, I suppose. Well, wear it as a badge of honour then. So taking more, more drugs and being in close relationships brings a sort of a contradiction because you're living two lives, I guess. So did that play on you, this idea that you are hiding part of yourself in a relationship? It kind of played both ways. Within relationship, it wasn't necessarily a problem because the question wasn't asked about the hiding so much because we would sometimes do it together. So it wasn't like two completely different people. There was just like slightly more of the same person. But there was a bit of a dichotomy that was across the board more generally. And and sometimes that was really, really hard work. But equally, a lot of the times that was a real badge of honour, just talking to people, knowing you're sitting there looking at me in my, my sensible shoes and my nice polo top, but you have no idea what I've got racing through my system right now while I'm talking to you about this you know, perfectly reasonable, quite mundane work issue. So that was probably more to do with recovery, but that was something I had to really work hard to dispel once recovery time came around it was it was hard to sort of turn that one around and recognize that that was damaging and it was inhibiting other opportunities to change there was no there. I mean, you'll find plenty of people that will you know, validate that you're awesome because you, know, you managed to do all this and have this conversation and drive this far whilst whilst under the influence of something so when did alcohol start playing a part in all of this when I studied, what I, what I studied in my early 30s, I studied teaching and it's a really tough sort of gig to get into. Teaching's a really hard profession to get into. So this has started in my early 30s and things were also coming to a head in the relationship as well. Not so much for, for substance use at all, but because there were sort of issues with the families getting along a little bit. So it was a bit, it was a bit tough because we wanted to get married and had to sort of drag the, the families along kicking and screaming to that idea. So that combined with teaching, which was really hard, I was just finding it too difficult to try to keep up a habit of, of using marijuana, you know, even in a recreational sense. I mean, I would drink at this time, but not in a daily way, not in a problematic sort of way and not in a hiding behaviours kind of way. But then... I went to see the GP and actually got some help trying to get off the marijuana, which I did do, but that led to quite a significant escalation in my drinking. And given that the marijuana by that time was sort of quite openly acknowledged as a problem, um, you know, that was causing issues in the relationship by this stage, I had made, you know, undertakings that, no, I'm going to cut right back on that and then I wasn't really cutting right back on it at times, along with a few occasions where, have you been doing this? No, yes, you have. Okay, yes, I have lied about it again, that sort of stuff. So it was on the table as an issue. It was on the table as something I've said, I really want to make some changes about this. So that's when I went to see a GP. I really struggled with getting, getting off the marijuana for a little bit. I was on some medication and some antidepressants for, for a couple of years whilst trying to get off the marijuana well I got off it fairly quickly um, but there was a period of some fairly sort of low feelings after that but during that time that's when the alcohol started to ramp up so this is probably 
early 30s through mid 30s that the alcohol was really ramping up and that was almost immediately into it, it sort of traded off the exact same behaviors that were problematic towards the end of the marijuana use so it was straight into deception so i would i would cook in our house i, I pretty much did all the cooking but i would have one drink out on the bench and that would be the drink that i was sort of openly having but then i'd be you know draining the bottle of cooking sherry which is in the cupboard because you know nobody checks up on the cooking sherry it's cheap and it's effective almost straight away it was a deceptive thing i mean i guess it's a horrible thing to say but it's it's not that hard to fool people who love you and people who want to believe you. Yeah, unfortunately, that's the case. Yeah, they're very much invested in you. You know, you obviously got married. So, did it change when you get ma- when you got married? Did it get worse? It did get worse, but not because of the marriage. I wouldn't say it, it got worse because it was just getting worse anyway. It was more of a tolerance thing. I just wanted to keep on having more and more and more. And at that time too, I I was actually working as a relief teacher. So sometimes I would deliberately make myself not available for a day's work and just spend that day drinking instead. Didn't mean I was always open about that. I might might say that I've got a job one day and just be lying about that or make up some sort of other excuse. Obviously, I can't do that too much because it's pretty obvious when you're not being paid. Yes, unfortunately. It was definitely a pattern of escalation there, not because of the marriage. It was, it was actually a lovely, lovely ceremony. We had some mutual friends that, you know, got us all together as, as the family and sort of knocked our heads together and suggested to everybody that you know, there's a whole lot of behaviours which we can leave behind and a whole lot of things which were just un- unnecessary in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, that was, that was actually really good. And the, the relationships right across there are, are quite good. The families really didn't know about my use then. At this point, obviously, my fiancé and then wife, she knew about it. But it's not something that she would talk to her family about. It wasn't something that I was particularly talking to my family about. There is a fairly significant history of alcohol misuse right right through the family. Through your family? Yeah, late, later on, I have learned that my brother had a you know long history with alcohol and many, many other drugs. Not that I was exposed to it back when I was talking talking about it earlier, but you, you find out later on that, yes, you had quite a long history there. But no, certainly grandparents, uncles, aunties, there's been plenty through the family that, medically speaking, drink way, way, way too much, but sadly fit fairly comfortably into an Australian view of drinking, whereby if you hold off till 6pm and, and just have whatever. Yeah, being a good citizen, really. Yeah. So when did your drinking become a problem that you had to deal with? Not long after the wedding, so probably about 2009. So we got married in 2008, probably about 2009. It was really putting a lot of pressure on on the relationship uh, with my wife. So that's when I first attended a few smart recovery meetings. It was reasonably new then, but they had one uh, down in Northcote. Um, there weren't many meetings at that stage, but I, I started going there and to be honest, I was reasonably disingenuous at the at the start. It was about me being able to say um, to my wife, hey, look, I'm going, going to this thing. But then I wasn't necessarily taking any behaviour change terribly serious. 
I certainly did attend a number of 12-step meetings, AA, and previously had tried NA. I personally didn't enjoy the 12-step the model as, as such. It was great talking to people at, at those meetings. You could certainly see there was some tremendous camaraderie there and there were some really good conversations had on the side. The actual 12 steps, though, was a little bit of a barrier to me in terms of you know, undertaking them and the fact that you know people were fairly insistent that you are undertaking them or you're not really. You're not serious, yeah. Yeah, and, and that's quite fair enough. They're quite invested in the process. They don't, don't necessarily want me hanging around at meetings if the, if I have no intention of engaging with what, what they all see as quite important. I don't know. I think some people who disagree with that, I think it's, I think it's there for people who want it. Uh, but if, yeah, if, if you don't want it, then it's, yeah, it's, it's up to you. Yeah. It didn't go to head until people actually said, do you want a sponsor? And I mean, no, I'm nasty about it. I said, no, no thanks. I just love coming here talking to people. And they're like, oh, not a great look, but quite right. Nobody said don't turn up or anything. They're like, oh, well, but we do like you having around, but please, you know, get a sponsor. And after a while, I actually just felt a bit bad that I might have been sort of taking the mickey or something like that. But I, I knew that the 12 steps as a model was something that I didn't particularly engage with quite strongly. Um, I would always look at the situation and think, well, you know, this substance has always been here. There's been a long, long time that I didn't have this issue with the substance. So something in my behaviours has changed. And that's where I saw the problem as lying in my behaviours, my approaches to situations, whether that was stresses or just habitual behaviours. That's where I saw the problem lying, not, not with the substance itself. And I, I was worried that I might struggle with the idea of never, ever again, or I might also view that as sort of an, a failure or, or an, an abrogation of my own responsibilities to myself to try to change those behaviours. So how did smart recovery vary, I guess, from the 12-step approach then? What, what was the attraction to that? The initial attraction at um, you know, Google searches was that there wasn't a whole lot of options out there that weren't sort of get yourself admitted to some sort of health service and formal counselling and that weren't 12 steps. So smart recovery was, was pretty much the only one I found then. But, even, but once I had actually arrived, it was the attraction was fairly immediate and it was just that it was practical. It was really based around setting some goals around your own behaviours, identifying the issues that you're having and, and in a quite short-term way as well. There's, there's a focus on you know, what's been happening the last seven days and then towards the end, there's a, a focus on, well, what are you going to do in the next seven days? So there were some really, I guess, practical things based around what are you going to do? I had seen a psychologist for maybe a period of eight months or so during a period that I, that I was depressed. And it mirrored a lot of the things which, which came up in those discussions. When it came out, the, the conversation was, well, Matt, you've identified these issues, so what what are some practical things that you're going to do about this? Now, here is something which you can change. Here is something that you can't change. You're investing a lot of energy in person X and you, you can't really change anything about them. So what are you going to do? And that was kind of mirrored in a lot of the, the smart recovery things. It's like, yes, you're in this quite stressful job, what can you change in there? What can't you? What can you plan better? 
what do you need to learn to accept a bit better? And then what other practical steps can you take? So the breaking down of time was really appealing to me. Um, that sort of knowledge of how the urges come and go and what you can do with them in those times. So I found that particularly helpful to just realise that I, I might be feeling really, really strongly a certain way uh, at a certain time, but 20 minutes later, if I can just avoid making a decision in that moment in time, 20 minutes later, I may well be feeling completely differently or well, that urge may have subsided a fair bit. And that sort of appealed to me because one of the one of the jokes I would make when I wasn't taking recovery very seriously was that I was, you know, succeeding 99% of the time because I would think about not drinking 99 times and not drink. And then I'd think about it once or I'd think about not drinking once and fail and drink. But, you know, the fact is those 100 thoughts happened every single day. So, yeah, precisely the same result. And I was glibly dressing that up as a 99% success rate and chuckling at it, which also brought home the idea of where the behavioural issues were. You know, that's, that's not as me being a goose. Thanks. Well, why don't we take another short break? Luciano and Georgia Keats, supported by the Australian Queer Archive, present Queer Ways, retracing Melbourne's queer footprint. Queer Ways is a community art project that maps the queer history of Melbourne, combining our community's stories and voices, past and present, into a permanent, interactive record of being queer in Melbourne. Visit www.queerways.melbourne now to record your story in queer history and explore our city's untold history. Queer Ways, a 3CR supporter. Come on, come in and hear the best live pop music from around town. It's your chance to tune in, so come on, come in. Live on Thursdays, 3pm, 3CR, 8.55am. This is Living Free on 3CR Digital and live streaming on 3cr.org.au. And I'm talking with Matt about recovery through Smart Recovery Australia. So, Matt, before the break, we, we were talking about, you know, getting into smart recovery and I guess the, the tools of smart recovery were, you consider them much more, more practical for your day-to-day life. So I guess do you want to talk a bit about what it's like to be in a smart recovery group? The, the format of the meeting is to... Uh, and forgive me if I talk about this as a face-to-face meeting, but for the majority of the time it was, I say this during yet another COVID lockdown. Yes, it was friendly. It was great. The fact that the the peers that ran the meeting, you know, had that lived experience themselves. So it was always a really comfortable space to be. But the format would start off with people checking in. So speaking about how things have gone over the, the last seven days for them. So they can get to focus on whatever behaviours they wanted to over that period. If you had been to sort of the previous meeting, there might be a focus there on any sort of goals that you'd set from the from the previous week. Then there would be sort of a bit of a, an agenda period of time. So if people have 
during their check-in are, are raised issues. That's when you can talk about them more broadly or you can really get into a lot of the tools because there's a lot of cognitive behavioural therapy tools which, which Smart use, which are all fairly simple in design but really quite effective because they, they put the onus back on the person themselves to you know actually list what are the things which are, are going to stress you, what are going to be the impediments, what's going to help you achieve you know, X, whatever it might be that you want to. Smart recovery is is good in the sense that they offer the peers sort of access to you know training facilitator training, but a big part of that is is of course motivational interviewing. So it's it's really based around not telling people what to do, but kind of directing people, almost like a mentoring kind of relationship, almost directing people to answer their own questions or to enlighten their own sort of situations. And the facilitators are, are quite good at that. If somebody else, you know, comes in and tells you what you should do, the facilitators are quite good at saying, you know, we'll, we'll let we'll let Matt get to that in his own time. Maybe we could, you know, ask Matt some questions around that, rather than you know, just telling people what to do. Because you know, if we if we say it ourselves, we're more likely to do it than just if somebody else barks an instruction at us and tells us that that's what we should do. We everybody in those rooms knows exactly what they should do. I mean, no one in there thought that 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 bottle or that joint or that amphetamine tub was going to going to make them healthier. Yeah. So the other thing, uh, the difference in smart recovery is the fact that people with different problems are in the same group, whereas other 12-step fellowships tend to isolate the, the different use problems. So is that an advantage in smart recovery to have that mix? I would definitely say so because it provides quite a different sort of starting point for people. But it's amazing how quickly it comes back down to behavioural issues. And I mean, the behaviours might be different for various people, but the motivations behind it are, are reasonably consistent right across the board. You know, there are they're not always the same, but there are very similar themes going through it. Um, the reason that somebody might develop an issue with pokies could well be the, precisely the same reason why somebody might develop a, an issue with alcohol or other drugs or, or shopping or, or even eating online pornography whatever it might be the motivations behind it could could easily be the same thing so it's enlightening and it really is quite helpful for a group to have that it's also quite useful to sort of know I often found that when because I would apply for grants when I was hosting when I was facilitating a meeting I'd, I'd apply to for the, to the local council for grants so that we could you know, get a free space in Northcote to actually have these meetings. Um, and it was actually, it would generate quite an interesting bit of data about what sort of substances people are coming forward with in a given area. And that, that showed a lot of variation between areas, but also then a lot of the same behaviours underpinning it. So when you talk to facilitators, then there might be different manifestations of behaviours in different socioeconomic groups, but the motivations behind it were, you know, reasonably universal. And I always liked that about the meetings, even at the start when I wasn't taking them terribly seriously and I was just doing it so I could point to other people and say I was doing it. The conversations were quite sort of rewarding. I was quite genuine when I'd be having the conversations and for that moment I was quite motivated. I just didn't put anything into place when I didn't have you know, the, the people around me. I probably attended for about six months in a fairly lazy kind of way in terms of my follow-through. Then I maybe dropped away for about six months and surely enough, even 
even then the behaviors were escalating and that's when I got a bit more serious about trying to make a change and started coming back to, to smart recovery meetings again. I would occasionally pop into a 12-step meeting, mostly on the basis of, you know, if the choice is engage in a problematic behaviour or go to a 12-step meeting, then the 12-step the is way more preferable to, to engaging in the behaviours that you're really trying to avoid. And, of course, I could find one of them, you know, any night, quite easy, um, not, not too far to travel sort of thing. So it was, they, they were great in that sense. That smart, I had to wait till the weekly one came around in my area. But I really started to make a lot of changes with my behaviour. And sort of the second going of me attending smart meetings, that's when I actually started to use some of the tools that were out there. I started to look at situations which were going to be problematic for me. I started to identify actual times of day. So I mentioned the cooking example before. Um, like a lot of one common thing that came out I thought I was, you know, thought I was special and unique, but turns out I was one of many people that would you know, finish a day's work and drink a lot very, very quickly in an attempt to get that feeling before you had some dinner. Yeah. So it was really helpful then because I could, you know, by making sure that I cooked dinner a bit faster or inviting somebody else in to come and have a conversation with me in the kitchen. So you know, they, they thought they were having a nice conversation, but I just had them in there to police me. Yeah. But, you know, dinner happened a bit earlier. Once I'd gotten through that period where my brain is saying, you know, all right, Matt, you haven't eaten for six hours. This is, this is the time to grab a bottle and drink a lot very quickly because you'll get a good effect in a, in a fairly short period of time. It, it turns out there's, there's like a, maybe a 20 minute window to get through that. And then, it was much, much easier. And part of that was, yes, I've had something to eat now, so I'm not going to get sort of quickly and noticeably drunk, which which is what I want. But also the actual thought process had changed in that time. You know, I've, I've wound out a little bit and I've gotten past that little mental step that said, all right, Matt, this is, this is your time. So did relationship with your wife improve given that you were, I guess you were in a better headspace? It did. But look, I was still drinking less, so it's not sort of on a daily basis now. But there were still times where I did drink and when I did, it would still be hidden because at this at this stage, it had become such a problem in the past sort of few years that the stated goal and the expectations were that I wasn't drinking at all. And it was the easiest way to kind of police it. And the attempts there were to not be drinking at all. but on occasion, I still I still would. Sometimes that would cause a fair bit of stress for my wife as well as myself, but mostly her. Probably the the thing that brought everything to a head was um, when I got caught drink driving. Right up on the Victorian New South Wales border, I got got pulled over and blew just shy of point two. So at that point, yeah, the whole idea of of hiding things it's it's just gone. You know you. 400 kilometres away from home, <clears throat> you're going to have to get a, a tow truck to come and get you from the police station and take you 80 kilometres back down the road to where the, where the cops made you leave your car and then you're going to have to get that tow truck to take you 120 to where your friend lives, you know, somewhere else on the Murray River and then you've got to organise what you're going to do the next day sort of thing. So the, the secrecy is just completely blown out of the water. 
Not long after that, I did actually check myself into a rehab facility, so a residential one. So that was for a month, which sort of gave that circuit breaker of time again, because by that stage, I'd stopped using all the tools that had been serving me quite well from, from the smart meetings. So I'd stopped actually sort of checking in with myself to find out, you know, how am I feeling at this given moment? Or you know, am I taking the route home that's going to take me past three Dan Murphys? Or am I taking the route home where I don't pass a bottle shop, where I don't have to make, you know, that decision 10 times on the way home to, to pull into a driveway or to not pull into that driveway? Just little things that can seem a bit trivial, but yeah, I'd really let those things go. I hadn't really spent that long with the new behaviours. The old behaviours had been entrenched over sort of 15 years. So you know, to, to spend one year with newer behaviours, it, it's not like you ever forget how to ride that you know, bad behaviour bike. How did your behaviour start changing once you came out of rehab? What, what did you really take seriously? The relationship was a big one. I felt like I'd probably at serious risk of losing that relationship. I got more worried about my health. My granddad, who had a serious issue with alcohol, um, died on account of it. So that sort of brought home a little bit of that as well. But mostly it was just a reminder of the desire that I had to change. I didn't particularly want to do it. It had stopped being fun a long, a long, long time before that. The alcohol was well and truly habitual then. Like I, I did enjoy being drunk, but I didn't really get that drunk anymore. It was, it was almost like I couldn't really drink enough to get drunk. The, the sheer quantity that I'd have to drink sort of excessive and I just didn't really have the time, especially when you're trying to hide it. You know, if you've got somebody coming home in 10 hours, then you know, I try to drink heavily for four hours and then spend six hours just you know, chewing on mint and parsley leaves out of the garden and hoping you could fool someone. <laughs> then they'd find bottles in the gutter and things like that. But yeah, that comes back to the fooling people that you like. So what did you do differently then? How, how did you break that pattern? Regularly checking in with people, trying to actually find out what it is that they sort of liked about me, didn't like me. What about, what could they do that would either restore a bit of trust in me or what could they do uh, help me, I guess would be the best way to put it. But I would always frame that in terms of some sort of accountability. Like, you know, do, do you need me to send you, you know, a video of me blowing into a breathalyzer at a certain time? Did you want me to pop in and visit you or something like that? But that sort of accountability was part of, I guess, the helpful side of things. So I would make sure that I'd be picking up my wife from work. So if I'm driving in to pick her up from the hospital, she's a nurse, not a patient, then I have to be sober for that. Well, I don't have to be, I guess, but I, I would be. It's I want two drink driving charges. But also then you're picking someone up who's, who's going to be able to smed you straight away. But... That and attending the smart meetings and over over a period of the next sort of 12 months, I started to take some opportunities to actually facilitate the smart meeting, um, do a bit of training so that I could could keep going with it, which really took some pressure off 
the facilitator at that time. But the biggest, I guess, shift for me is, is what you were talking about before about trying to do things for other people. There was volunteering work with community groups, local uh, community gardens, just things which were based in stuff which I really do enjoy anyway, but taking the time to sort of share them with other people. And that was, yeah, that was a great benefit from me. Did having children change the way you viewed, you know, recovery? That was that was a fair way into the recovery by the time the children came. So after the drink driving incident towards the end of 2012, that was pretty much the end of the, the really heavy drinking episodes. There were maybe three or four in the 12-month period after that. But, you know, they, they were quite sporadic. Um, children didn't happen until 2017. Um, there were some sort of fertility issues there, so we had to go through IVF. We, we'd started probably about 2014, but that was, that was an IVF thing. But by then, the recovery was mainly framed around the fact that I enjoyed facilitating the smart meetings. I got a lot from hearing other people's stories. I got a lot from you know, people saying that, you know, it's a good part of their week or they would enjoy coming in and talking about things or that they had made some really, some really positive changes in their life. So that to me became one of, I guess, the defining factors of the recovery and also just that ability to have people talk to you quite honestly and just say, well, you know, I'm actually really enjoying this time. We can go and do this on the weekend or I'm not worried about leaving to go and do this other thing and I'm not worried about what I'm coming home to. Probably by about 2016 or so that it actually reached a point where I, and this is the point that we're still at now where, I mean, I, I can have a drink with, with my wife, you know, it's not, if I were to go and get a, a bottle of wine or something out of the cupboard and there is wine in the house, if I were to go and get a bottle of wine out of the cupboard, there's no, there's no sort of drama with it. It's, it's not an issue. It's, I guess this is probably one of the defining characteristics of recovery for me. And one thing that probably sets it aside from the 12 step is that I never wanted to, to say never ever i wanted to be able to change those behaviors and the vast majority of the time i i don't drink now just because easy not to but it's a real sort of i guess feather in the cap that and a, a, a feeling i enjoy when somebody can trust you with that and that that took quite a while you know there were a number of times where i'd say you know i'm feeling pretty good about this and someone you know do you mind if i do this and someone say yeah that's okay and you could see it was was really quite hard for for them, but yeah, over time that just diminished. And I guess you know if you if you've done it in a particularly poor way and hurt someone so many times, it's going to take quite a while to turn it around. But by the time the kids came, first one in 2017, second one in 2019, yeah, not really so much of an issue at all. It certainly changed my perspective in terms of how I approach any number of issues i mean we're talking about behavior change when we're looking at smart recovery so you know it's it's cbt some behavioral therapy techniques which which underpin the tools but i mean that that sort of behavior change stuff is 
is really important with kids and the the focus there isn't that I'm treating them like a smart recovery meeting or anything but that you know I, I've paid attention to my own behaviors and I've put a lot of effort into thinking about well you know this is what I can contribute and although I'm tired now I'm actually going to feel really good about this and a little example of that would be as I was um when when the first was born I had I had a really stressful um, period of time in my in my teaching job and I'd actually sort of have a little conversation with myself coming up the coming up the driveway when we got home because it was a block of flats and there was about a hundred meter walk up the driveway so you know, listen to the radio on the drive home and then spend that time just walking up the driveway reminding myself that the, the people inside the house haven't been the ones who have you know been shouting at me all day or whatever it might be so it's sort of a fresh start and it's a not so much an obligation but it's a, a fresh chance to contribute something positive and false modesty aside I'm probably not probably I am the most patient and calm member of the household now so those skills that you pick up and more importantly those skills that you practice really do stay with you and they're based on you know moderating acknowledging the situations around moderating where needs be um, changing where needs be rather than you know just saying no something can't happen which which was what i wanted to avoid from the from the 12-step model which you know would have solved one problem but i've certainly embraced a, a whole lot of other skills thanks to that that approach from smart recovery thank you if Listeners uh, would like to find out more about Smart Recovery Australia. You can visit them at smartrecoveryaustralia.com.au for details and meetings and contact information, uh, or you can call them directly on 02-9373-5100. So that's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Matt Woodley of Smart Recovery Australia for joining us and sharing his Smart Recovery experience with us. Thanks, Matt. Thank you very much, Bill. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. No worries. I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when we'll be talking about recovery from family disease of alcoholism and be joined by a member of Alan Family Groups. Thanks for listening today. Stay safe and stay tuned now for more Radical Radio on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.